I've sat in rooms and I've sat in Zoom calls and, and conferences and meetings and and had people tell me that we can't do what we're doing and it won't work. While I'm looking around the room going, well, I can bring 20 people in that have were successful in that and mm-hmm. c- can speak to that. And I don't know that your master's degree can possibly outweigh the 20 people that I can bring in in two seconds that'll Absolutely. tell you you're wrong. Is there- Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Uh, Welcome back to the Plugged In Media Network studio, Our Collective Journey podcast from Darkness to Life. We're back here again this week. Yeah, my good buddy Rick sitting here beside me. Hi. This is a different chair for you. It is. Yeah. Kind of like you having me on my right, not across the table. I don't have to look at you as much. <laughs> uh, you and know, we're just how to make a guy feel special. I know, right? <laughs> I know. I think we're close enough now after a couple of years, we yeah, can talk to yeah. each other like that. And we are joined today with uh, one of our special friends, Michaela Fry, MLA for Brooks Medicine Hat. She's been gracious enough to join us today. I was actually again. I was actually thinking about this, and I think you're our first like repeat guest. Yeah, I can't think of another one. No. Oh, I'm sorry for your listeners. Not one by choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a great day. The sun is shining. We've got some rain. Southern yeah. Alberta is looking green, which is really weird for June. So a little less flammable than yeah, last week. Small victories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tender mercies like that. It's great. Yeah. And I noticed Rick was gracious enough to pick us all up coffee this morning. Thanks, Rick. You're welcome. Big yeah. fan of Rick. That's a Usually I wouldn't drink deal. anything Rick got me, but <laughs> <laughs> this Rick is trustworthy. The previous Rick, not so much. <laughs> Round of roofies for everybody. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, moving on to something more important. Uh, yeah, thanks for fitting us in your busy schedule today. I know we, I think you, we double booked you for tomorrow and today, and now you're here today. Now I'm here today. Happy to do it. Yeah, for sure. And we're happy that you're here. We're happy uh, anytime we get to sit down and talk to anyone from the GOA, especially you and uh, all your support for OCJ and how much that means to us, hey? Yeah, it's been pretty remarkable. You're, every time we call you, you answer and there's not a lot of people that do that for us. No. We usually get a couple, like they'll answer a couple times, but then they stop. But no, you seem to always show up whenever we ask and uh, you're always you're always in our corner and we appreciate it. Well, the work that you guys do speaks for itself. I mean, I've been a huge fan of you. I've um, I've told everyone who I run into how awesome you are. And I mean, you say that I pick up the phone every time that you guys call, but you guys also pick up the phone every time that I call. And I've seen people um, at their worst, um, either in my office or in my everyday life. And I've, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I ran into someone and I was like, I feel like they're a great candidate for OCJ. I'm going to text Rick and Ryan, see what happens. And sure enough, that person was helped within that day. And I, and I just think it speaks to what the impact that you guys have on the community and also what you guys do for people and um, the real-time care that you provide, the grassroots support, the um, wraparound services. I mean, you guys were in the middle of a your biggest fundraiser ever, uh, <laughs> flying by the seat of your pants and doing everything. And you still manage to find time to give help to someone who needs it. And I think that just speaks to how hard you guys work and what you're willing to do for the community. So um, I pick up because you guys pick up and that's, um, it's, I'm just happy to do it. Yeah. Awesome. Pretty awesome. Well, and I know that we talk about it all the time, right? If you don't pick up that window of opportunity closes mm-hmm. so quickly that somebody may not reach out again, or maybe they don't stay alive long enough to reach out again. Mm-hmm. And I know, uh, personally, and I can speak for you too. I think that we came pretty close at the end to, uh, falling into that category of not having a second chance at, you know, a different life and recovery. And somebody was there to help us at the start. And, uh, that's what we keep doing for the next person and keep phoning. <laughs> we well, appreciate it. If somebody has the courage and the willingness to say, I need help, I think it's incumbent upon us as a government and as also just as community members to find them help when they need it the most. And up until recently, especially Medicine Hat, those supports were harder to find. And I mean, I I don't ever want to slam any organizations in this community because everybody has a role to play. Mm -hmm. But I think 
what makes you guys so unique at OCJ is that you occupy a space in which nobody was in before. And that was on demand right now, real time help. And it's help from somebody who gets it. It's not somebody in an ivory tower who has a super sterilized medical background, which is needed in some instances, but not in all. Um, You have somebody who will come and meet somebody where they're at. And I think that's what's the most important thing because we have, we do have organizations that are going to be there with the technical expertise to sit down and, and, you know, troubleshoot and say, okay, here are coping mechanisms, here are this, here's that. But what we don't have a whole lot of is peer to peer support that, um, that really gets it. And I think you guys occupy, I know you guys occupy a space in which you're able to provide people advice from lived experience, which I think is, um, so, well, it, it's fantastic. And we, I know it helps people because I've seen it help people. And um, yeah, that, that's why, I, once again, anytime you guys call, I answer. And it's also why I feel an incumbency upon me as as not only an MLA, but as a person in this community to find ways to support you. So um, I'm your cheerleader. I'll always be your cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy just to I'm happy just to stand behind you guys and watch the work that you do. But um, it's also nice to be invited on a podcast to talk about it. Yeah, so right? <laughs> it works both ways. Yeah, that's awesome. And and. You know, this, uh, uh, well, you, you, you are a politician, so we will pump your tires a bit and, and do some marketing for you, but careful. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, this, what I like about you, well, one of the many things I like about you is um, this isn't just something that you're supporting a community agency. And, and I do feel like a very genuine attachment to n- not even so much us, but what we're trying to do and the demographic that we're trying to serve. And I think just your involvement with um, cabinet committees and stuff has really spoken to that. Even I think you were involved in that, you know, you were, you were playing in the sandbox before we were even. And uh, I think your commitment to, to the opioid crisis, to the, you know, to the vulnerable populations, to the drug and alcohol abuse, and it, uh, it speaks volumes to how you are actually passionate about this topic. And it isn't just a speaking point for, as a politician, it's, it's something you're passionate about. And I remember, um, at the recovery summit, getting the sip beside you and how pumped you were to get to yeah. meet one of the, one of the guest presenters. I was geeking out so hard. <laughs> you, you were so much, but it was like authentic. And that's what I really appreciated about mm-hmm. it. Right. It wasn't like, you know, there was no cameras around. There wasn't anybody, you know, you weren't getting any, any media for points sure. for it. It was like this, you, you care and it's genuine. Well, I do care and I care because like, and I haven't really gotten into this before publicly, but I guess whatever story time, like (laughs) I, I do care because it matters. And, um, for me personally, like I've had, um, if it wasn't for somebody else telling me how to access mental health supports, I wouldn't be where I am today. Mm -hmm. And so while I might not have the experience with, let's say like an addiction or, um, with drug or alcohol abuse or substance abuse, I I mean, I had, I was medicated for anxiety. I had um, obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm, you know, I'm very type A. There's lots of things that I went through that I didn't even know I was going through. And I will honestly say that without Mike Ellis, who is now the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, um, without him connecting me with someone who is a psychiatrist out of Edmonton, I would not even be functioning today. Mm -hmm. And um, his intervention, it was, I was having a, I think I was just having a meltdown one day and it's like, I'm like a toddler sometimes. It's just like, (laughs) it just hits you. It hits you all at once. And I was just, I was like, Mike, I can't do it anymore. Like I just can't. I can't show up here one more day and feel the way that I'm feeling. I don't know what's wrong with me. I think I'm crazy. And he was like, well, you're not crazy. He's like, maybe you just need help. And I was like, well, I don't need help. I'm not that crazy. <laughs> and you Helps know, and crazy like, people. Right. And, 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 but I'm going like, what does that even mean, Michaela? Mm-hmm. So I, I, as I was working through this in my own head and I, and it's funny because we give advice to other people. Like we're very quick to say, well, you don't need to be at rock bottom to go find help. Like, yeah therapies for everyone um help is for everyone like you it's not we need to destigmatize it all this stuff but in my own head i hadn't broken that down and i hadn't unpacked that yet and so when i was told um it was actually through our whips office that there were resources available and that i could go and talk to someone um with anonymity and um confidence and trust like that totally changed the game for me so like when i'm talking about mental health supports and that was during covid too which was really hard for me and, and it was hard for everyone but like personally take work out of it completely that was very hard for me and i didn't fare very well mentally over that and emotionally over that and um i think that 
knowing that there is help is so important, whether you're going through an addictions crisis, whether you're going through a mental health crisis, whether you're going through whatever you're going through, just knowing that there's somebody who's going to listen to you, who can help you is so important. And like I said, I would not be here. Um, I would not be here in the capacity that I am if it weren't for people stepping up. And I, and I credit that to Mike Ellis, honestly. Um, he's not even here, but I'm pumping his tires <laughs> anyway. But um, I credit that to Mike and to his office and to the work that they did to help me get through a, t- a really rough patch. And, and honestly, the premier, um, Jason Kenny was pivotal in that as well. Um, he phoned me directly and asked me if I was okay, um, which meant more to me than I think anything mm-hmm. ever had. Cause it was somebody who just, doesn't have time in his day to call you and ask if you're okay, but he did anyway. So um, I think just showing up for people really means something Mm -hmm. and uh, I'll forever be grateful for that. So that's, that's a little bit of why I care personally that it matters to me, but also um, our community needs this. Like Mm -hmm. we, we went through two years of chaos um, that nobody could have ever saw coming. Um, We had people taking their lives who, um, really flip the script on what it meant to need help. I mean, we all have this picture of what an addict looks like, what somebody who has mental health concerns looks like. And it's certainly not the person whose face is on the TV or Mm -hmm. who's running the successful company. I mean, you guys have spoken about this before too. We always see addicts or somebody who needs help as somebody who's desolate. They're on the street. They're that, that population that, that just needs help right now. And they can be served by, you know, there's there's agencies to do that, but we often forget to talk about the people who are suffering in silence. And those are the people who, for all intents and purposes on the outside, they look okay. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. Um, they've got it all together. They've got a fancy house, a nice job, a cool car, whatever. They might have, they have all the ducks and all their ducks in a row and all for the sure. bells and whistles. Right. But at the end of the day, like they're not okay. And, um, so I think that it's important that guys like you step up and you did, you showed like, look, I had it all together. I, my life was great but I was absolutely destroyed on the inside. Mm-hmm. And so um, now I'm rambling, but I, I just think it's, it's important that we talk about that mm-hmm. and we shift the face on what addiction looks like, what mental health concerns look like. And we start talking about people and meeting people where they're at. So. Yeah. I think one of the coolest parts of, you know, building relationships with the GOA <clears throat> for me, whether it was with yourself or, or Mike and his, and his team, or even uh, Dr. Nathaniel day, some of the best conversations I've had were with uh, Dr. Day and, um, the, the access to information is, has been really cool mm-hmm. for me. Um, so, you know, instead of having theories and thoughts about what this actually looks like, being able to be provided with actual statistics to support some of the things is, sure. is, has been really remarkable. And one of the ones, and I, and I always butcher this, one of the ones that really sticks out to me, and I, I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong, but it's, it's in the ballpark for sure is uh, in the last 12 months, 70% of the opioid overdoses in the province of Alberta were in a a residence that was owned Mm -hmm. by somebody, whether that was the individual who overdosed or somebody they were using with. Mm -hmm. But that Mm -hmm. goes directly in the face of the image of that population that so many of us have of that destitute, um, you know, homeless, vulnerable population, or even even those in the rental market, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, It's not, always the people that we think it is. And that's kind of what we try to speak to as much as we can, because, you know, and, and I'm not at all, like you said, I'm not at all discounting the services that are out there and the agencies that are working and, and that demographic. We need them all. Everybody we, yeah, occupies For sure. Space. For sure. Right. But there's been so much support and focus on that 30% that there hasn't really been much of a voice for that 70%. And for I know, sure. You know, and then that was my case. I know it's been the case for many people that we've, we've worked with is I don't recognize myself as having a problem. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't have identified as an alcoholic. I wouldn't have identified as a drug addict. I wouldn't have even identified as having mental health issues yep. because I wasn't that population. And in the meantime, I'm suicidal and drinking and drugging every day. Mm-hmm. Right. But I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm good. Right? Well, I mean, and the statistics that we saw from the GOA specifically, like, for your reader's knowledge, we are, or your, your listener's knowledge, I guess. <laughs> We're not writing a book, Michaela. But for your listener's knowledge, like... Not yet, anyway. <laughs> TBD. Um, but in Medicine Hat alone, I think it was uh, the statistics that I was shown were that it's almost 100% 
of the people who are overdosing are doing so in their home. And they are also the title holder, meaning they own the home. Mm -hmm. So it's not this, like you said, this destitute addict that needs help. I mean, those people exist too, and they deserve space and they deserve to be heard and they deserve to be helped. No questions asked. But there also needs to be space for us to acknowledge and offer help to those who won't access resources that are often there for those who are destitute Mm -hmm. because there still is so much stigma around accessing help and even even somebody you know that you have in your life might say oh i i don't need that that's not that's not for me that's for them but there's so much othering that happens there and i think that we have to break down those barriers but the only way to break down those areas barriers is to meet people where they're at which is exactly what you guys do yeah yeah, absolutely. And and that person-centered approach, right? We had a right. few guests on here over the last month that talked about that person-centered approach and that client-focused care. And we had one individual who talked to grant-focused care because it looks great on paper and it gets you money, but it doesn't actually follow through with what you're providing mm-hmm. individuals. And, you know, us answering the phone at eight o'clock on a Sunday night and then going to have coffee with somebody that night, that's client-focused care. That's person-centered, meeting people where they're at, right? Inviting someone through the door and having them sit down and fill out 15 documents before you even get to talk to them. <laughs> in, ad- in two weeks. Yeah. And, and advertise that this is client-focused care. I, that's where I have a problem, right? It's like, let's eliminate those roadblocks. We'll get to that. We'll get consent and we'll talk with you right now where you're at. And that's, for me, that's that's where you save lives right off the bat. Well, and, and you know, that, <clears throat> that minority population that is by all means the most at risk. I'm not denying that. Mm-hmm. Um, they mm-hmm. have, they have the least amount of recovery capital in their banks. Right. But, um, for the better part they're you know, they've, they've typically been in the system. They've been through the processes. They know the supports that are out there and they do utilize them mm-hmm. where the, where I think we fall flat is like you were talking about those, you know, those title holding employed folks that they don't know where to reach out for help. And, and the the agencies that are in place are associated with that lesser, well, I shouldn't say lesser, that more destitute population, the more mm-hmm. more vulnerable population. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just the ego is a big thing, man. Ego will mm-hmm. ego will Pride. stop somebody from getting help. You know, for sure, you can be suicidal, but. And, and hate everything about yourself, but you still got too much pride to ask for help. And yeah. it's, it's this crazy oxymoron that, you know, it, it stops people from reaching out. And we were even calculated with, you know, where we put our office. We, you know, mm-hmm. we bounced around a couple ideas of, of where we should house <laughs> OCJ. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and ultimately it was like, we need, we need to be an independent freestanding agency mm-hmm. so that we aren't associated with anybody else. We had, For sure. we had a couple of different options of, of where to kind of hang our hat. And, uh, and we ultimately decided to, to do it independently so that nobody would have to feel they're going into one of those agencies or one mm-hmm. of those, yeah. you know, we had, we had churches, we had all kinds of different stuff. Right. And it was mm-hmm. like, no, we need to make this as, as neutral as possible so that nobody associates with For sure. anything. Right. Yeah. You're just mm-hmm. coming into a building. Like eliminating one more obstacle. Exactly. Right. And, and hopefully, you know, and the biggest obstacle, I would say the vast majority of the time is pride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we can, if we can eliminate the stigma, which is, you know, and I kind of hate that because like stigma has become like a catchphrase too. Mm-hmm. Right? Totally. Um, but, you know, el- eliminate that roadblock and make it as inviting and as uninhibiting as possible mm-hmm. to, to reach out for help and to be as, Re, you know, and I think that's the one big thing that we bring to the table is I'm unapologetic, unapologetically, authentically me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it gets, it gets me some uncomfortable looks and it makes Ryan <laughs> just shake his head sometimes. And I know I've been in some rooms with Michaela and said some stuff and even she kind of shook her head, but it's, it's, it's what you get, right? It's, oh, it's beautiful. But it's the, it's the authenticity that I think, um, allows us to, to relate to just, you know, the, the people that are out there that were just like us. Totally. Well, and that piece. We laugh because yeah, you have said some things that I shake my head up, but that resonates with certain people, mm-hmm. right? Whereas my approach doesn't resonate with them. So it's putting those people in place and letting them have the freedom to be authentic and build that relationship with people that I'll never connect with or people that Michaela won't connect with, but mm-hmm. they'll resonate from you, right? Or resonate with you. And it's proven to work over the last year and a half. There's so many people that reach out and they're either, no, they're too, they don't want the soft, easier approach. They need that hard 
kind of unpolished approach that Rick has. <laughs> and it works for so many people, right? Totally. And there's a difference between, I think, being platitudinal versus being genuine. And yeah. and so often when governments get up and start talking about mental health, like just from my perspective, you know, um, we see governments get up and they're like, we care about mental health. Mental health is as important as physical health, yada, yada, yada. And it starts to come, become like the Charlie Brown teacher where it's like, what, want, 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 right? Because it doesn't mean anything because there's no action behind those words. Totally. And I think that when we start speaking in platitudes and we fail to connect with people, we're not doing our job. So it's like, you can have, you know, you can write a check to an organization and call that work, which is so like grant focused. You yeah. can, you can fill out a piece of paper, toddle or, you know, check all the boxes and be fine. Or you can change the system completely, turn it on its head and figure out how do you actually eliminate barriers that way. And so like our government, We've reduced, we've taken away user fees for, for mm-hmm. facilities. We've expanded um, treatment centers. Um, we found new ways to solve old problems. Like, for example, the Doors app. Like, we, we talked about people overdosing in their home. So, okay, well, how do we solve that? Well, we find a way for people to get help in their home without having to leave their house. So, we use things like, we used um, a digitized response, so a digital opi- or overdose response system. Um, we use um, telehealth through VODP or the v- Virtual Opioid Dependency or dependency Program. We find mm-hmm. people therapies that work instead of just putting them in this cycle of rinse and repeat that isn't <laughs> working. And I think like your approach, Rick, is different than mine. It's different mm-hmm. than, than Ryan's. It'd be different than Damien's. It'd be different than the minister's. It'd be different than everyone's. But some, But it's not about providing a blanket one-size-fits-all solution. It's about finding where someone's at, meeting them there, and then figuring out how it's going to work. And I'm sure there's been people who have come to you guys that you've said, well, we're actually not the right organization for you. Totally. So it's, it's not that we think, or that I think that you guys can be the one all be all for everyone, but it's, you occupy a space in our community that needs to be occupied. Mm -hmm. And that's why I have supported you and I'll always support you. And I appreciate all your quirks, Rick. (laughs) And I also appreciate that you bring coffee. So, Hey, like there's a (laughs) trade-off. Quirks. I don't know if I've ever heard them called quirks. I've been called a lot of things. Quirk. I don't know. It's a quirk. I I don't know. I love it. I'm going to use that as a defense mechanism. Yeah. It's my quirk. That's just a quirk. Kayla said so. Well, and, and, you know, even to that point, I think we were probably, we recognize that really early how like, you know, between me, Ryan and Damien, we're standing up there and we like, we damn near look like brothers. We're all the same, <laughs> you know, same tattoos, same beard, same, you know, and we're, and it was like, okay, well we're, we're without intentionally representing a demographic we're mm-hmm. the optics of it are mm-hmm. that we are that demographic. Right. And so we recognize that pretty early and actively tried to get out and recruit um, more support from, from individuals with lived experience that wanted some of the education and get on, get into the recovery coaching programs. And just so that, um, we, we have representation because, you know, like you said, I'm not everybody's cup of tea, neither is Ryan, neither is Damien. And so we, we go out and we actively seek out as many different people as we can. And our intake process is much different than a lot of other agencies because it's pretty much a phone call in and, and Ryan fields the majority of those phone calls. And whether that phone call turns into a cup of coffee or just come down to the office and we'll have a chat. And then we just kind of go, okay, well, who in our Rolodex, I'm dating myself a bit. I don't think Rolodex is even <laughs> exist anymore. Who in my cell phone, <laughs> um, of, of our resources is the best match for this individual so that, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's, whether it's a female, whether it's the LGBTQ community, what, you know, whatever that is, you know, we've reached out to, you know, we've got contacts now with, uh, with some people out at Siksika and Kainai and, you know, whether they're people of indigenous backgrounds, we're, tr- we're trying to have a portfolio of resources that mm-hmm. we can do our best to match somebody with the best match just for to, sure help them relate and, and be able to be as effective as possible in supporting them in their recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I like the piece, you know, they connect with us and they, if we build that support network that we're building and we have this Rolodex, like you said, right. <laughs> they don't have to go tell their story to six different other places mm-hmm. and six different other people. And cause I know for me that got awfully old at the start. Oh my gosh. I, I would rather walk out the door than tell my story to one more person to, mm-hmm. to find the help I needed. So that's the other piece that that helps with a lot. And I think what you said, Michaela is how, what really jumps out at me is how, you know, we're not the one-stop shop on the block. And we recognize that along with what Rick was just saying really early. And 
OCJ's existence was we're uh, experts in our stories. That's it. So we got to build this collaboration with the existing agencies, mm-hmm. like you talked about, that are doing good things in this community and they're in their lanes. We got to build those networks with all these different professionals because when somebody recognizes what their issues are, we're not the two dudes that are going to help them with that, but we're going to build these relationships that are going to expedite that process to get mm-hmm. them there. And that's what made us different than a lot of other things that popped up in this community at the start is we didn't build walls and want to fix everyone. We wanted to break down the walls and let's just build a stable, safe place for somebody to connect with us and then we'll get them where they need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think our, our role primarily is is building trust and building hope, mm-hmm. right? If we can provide those two things to anybody out there struggling, that opens the door for us to introduce them to other agencies and other professionals and, uh, and other people that can help them. I mean, I'm by no means a therapist, right? Uh, like, <laughs> no way. <laughs> true, true story. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, I'm not that guy. But, um, you know, if you want to talk about some of the things that brought you to a spot that you think you need therapy, mm-hmm. I'll have that conversation with you all day. We can... You know, I, I can relate on a lot of fronts and, uh, and I think that's where, you know, building that trust is, is, you know, I'm not, I'm not a clinical polished analytical educate, well, I shouldn't say educated, but like, I'm, I'm not a professional at this, right? This is just, I, I know this because I've experienced it. I didn't study about it. I didn't Mm -hmm. learn about it. I don't have a degree in it. I lived it. (laughs) So, you know, that's where the trust comes, but then equally as important I've been there. I've been into the darkest place that you can possibly be. I've, I understand the feelings and the thoughts and the emotions that got you to that spot, but I also got out of it. And, th- you know, here's the path that I, I took. And, you know, that might not be everybody's path, but mm-hmm. there is a path. Mm-hmm. And that's where the hope comes in. And once you've got people's trust, then they'll start listening to your hope and, and, and taking some action that you might recommend going, you know, where I, when I was there, this is what I did and it helped tremendously. And, and yeah. so, you know, I see OCJ's primary purpose to be those two things, providing hope and, uh, and trust. Yeah. But I think the reason why our government has taken to your approach so much is because that's very much the approach of the minister's office. I mean, we have, and I mean, the minister was at your fundraiser and he spoke about this very candidly and, and his staff speak about it candidly. Everybody in his office has a relationship with addiction in some way, shape or form. Um, there's people who have been that destitute person on the streets in, um, in Vancouver or Montreal, um, people who've hit rock bottom, who understand what they're going through. But what I think is so interesting, and maybe you guys can comment on this is the propensity of, I guess the ivory tower or the, um, the well-educated quote unquote, to think that they can speak on behalf of people with lived experience and think that their their academic knowledge or their theoretical knowledge trumps somehow mm-hmm. the lived experience of somebody else. Like I see that very often. We because our I mean, the minister's office is making much of, much of the decision that they are making are coming from lived experience. I mean, these guys are also whip smart. Like and you guys have met them, and I think anybody oh, yeah. who meets them understands. Like they really get this. But a lot of where they're coming from isn't because they picked up a book and read it. It's because they've lived it and they've walked the walk and they have that like very real street knowledge that is so important to understanding this crisis. And um, so I guess I would, you know, we see this happening with so many issues, like safe supply is one of them. Um, You know, there's a school of activists and thought that says we should be providing taxpayer funded, full fledged, full bore opioids um, into the general population because that is somehow reducing harm. Mm -hmm. Then there's the other side of things where coming from lived experience and actually the high quality medical evidence from around the world is suggesting otherwise. I mean, we had 21 stakeholders present to our committee. Bipartisan stakeholders. Uh, bipartisan stakeholders. So stakeholders that have advised presidents like like um, George W. Bush, but also Barack Obama, the Clintons, um, you know, like they these are not all people of one political persuasion. In fact, some of them are definitely not of our political (laughs) persuasion and they've been open about that and that's fine. But the point is, is that this isn't a partisan or a political issue. This is an issue. It's a public health issue. Like addiction is a public health crisis. The opioid crisis is a public health crisis. We saw that during COVID. We'll continue to see that. And and until we stop treating it like a political issue and a political football, we're never going to get through that. And so what, what's so important to me is like hearing those perspectives, but also acknowledging that there is a place for lived experience, but that we need to not discount lived experience because it isn't, um, you know, it's not in vogue that day. Yeah. 
And um, so I know from my work on the Safe Supply Committee, um, we have learned that safe supply is anything but safe. And um, the propensity for um, drugs to be diverted from clinics in sterile environments to go to collect street value and be traded for something that gets you a better high um, is very rampant and it's all over the place. And now with the conversation around decriminalization of all drugs, um, when somebody who in BC right now, an 18 year old can't even vote, or I believe they can vote, but they def- they couldn't go sit in a bar and grab a beer, yeah. but they can carry a whole, they can have cocaine on them. Of, yeah. They can have yeah. two and a half grams of cocaine or heroin on them. No problem. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm sorry, but something's not adding up for yeah. me here. Yeah, for sure. And so in this pursuit of being, in this pursuit of being, um, you know, of harm reduction, quote unquote, what we're actually doing is causing more harm. And there is a place for harm reduction. That's where places like things like virtual opioid dependency program, like we believe in that 100%. We need to have opioid agonist therapies like Sublocade and Suboxone and, and things like that that are going to help people get on the path to recovery. But what we can't keep doing is providing an endless supply of taxpayer-funded <laughs> opioids to try to put a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. Like it's just, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things, uh, you know, going back to where you started there, I, I will absolutely give credit. Um, I've had the I've had the tremendous opportunity to sit and, you know, much like yourself, um, you know, when I when I first got to meet you and see that this isn't a political platform for you, this is a, a passion project. Um, but when I got to sit with Mike and 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 Marshall and Eric and and David, you know, and the that cabinet team, and and as well as even the premier and. and you know, it, it might not be popular to say right now, but I'm disappointed at how all of that played out with the premier because he was, when I got to sit with him privately with no cameras around and no microphones, you know, he stayed, he stayed for a conversation that was, um, genuine out of genuine interest and genuine compassion. And, and, uh, he, it, it, I can't say enough how much it meant to see the policymakers sitting in the room, having a conversation, trying to educate themselves and listen to what the lived experience people in that room had to say without the cameras with, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't about a soundbite. It wasn't about getting your name in the paper. It was, it was genuine interest in how do we solve this problem? So on, you know, to the first point, I can't say enough about the, the team that we have leading, leading this, um, as far as the ivory tower goes, you know, I, I, I don't get that sense from, this is where I might get in trouble. <laughs> I don't get that sense from the top end of the government. Mm-hmm. I, I do believe that there is very much, uh, a venue and a voice for the lived experience population where that gets discounted and minimized is at the middle management of certain government funded agencies and programs. Um, being as politically correct as I can. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and, and, you know, I've sat in rooms and I've sat in zoom calls and, and conferences and meetings and, and had people tell me that we can't do what we're doing and it won't work while I'm looking around the room going, well, I can bring 20 people in that have were successful in that and mm-hmm. c- can speak to that. And, I don't know that your master's degree can possibly outweigh the 20 people that I can bring in in two seconds that'll Absolutely. tell you you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And then to even, even in the face of that still be like, no, sit down, have a seat. Right. And it was, it's like, it's really frustrating and it's hard. And, you know, me and Ryan have had days, you know, we've, we've had a couple of times that we've met in a parking lot and went, what are we doing? Like, is this really worth the effort? Cause it's like beating your head against the wall some days. And, uh, and like, we've really had moments, honestly, that we were like, whatever, this isn't worth it. What are we even doing? And we've thought yeah. about just walking away. Right. And then, you know, almost like clockwork, we'll get a phone call from somebody or a message from somebody that day. And it's like, no, makes it all worth it. We, we, we do, we got to keep doing this no matter what. Right. For sure. And, uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a tricky spot. Cause I do feel like we have, we have the support and, and I don't mean we as an OCJ, I mean, this, this movement, this recovery oriented system of care, the, the voice for the lived experience population. 
I do genuinely believe that we have we have the support from the top. It's it's that middle it's that middle management that is where the hiccups come. But I think the more we just keep doing what we're doing and the more the evidence will speak for itself, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's just a matter of making sure that we can last long enough to have a database of evidence behind us. And I'll mm-hmm. say like it's not the evidence that's working against um that's working against you. Like there, there is high quality medical evidence that suggests that some of these things that are being pushed in the public sphere are not helpful. Yeah. And I'm excited to, I guess from darkness to light, like <laughs> I'm excited to bring that out of the darkness and, and bring it into the public sphere. We'll, we'll have mm-hmm. a report coming out soon from the committee, the special select committee on safe supply um, that shows that demonstrates very clearly what um, what we need to do and um, what is effective and what is not for solving the opioid crisis. And I'm really looking forward to that. And I hope that um, mm-hmm. Albertans will see the value in that as well, because it's been something that we've been working on uh, for the past few months. And um, it's been overwhelmingly helpful in contextualizing and actually adding some of that academic background to it. But also um, it, it just helps to contextualize what we see in our communities right now. For sure. And uh, like one of the really cool moment I had was with one of my kids came home one day and asked me, they were doing a, you know, in, in, I believe I suspect it was social studies in school, junior high. Um, They were doing a study on, I don't know if it was specifically the opioid crisis, but he had a whole bunch of questions about um, decriminalization and safe supply. And, and I Mm -hmm. think it was safe injections. That's what it was. It was the topic of safe injection sites. And, uh, his teacher was like, yeah, here's, you know, write a paper on how this is going to solve all the problems. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I listened to him, I heard him out, I heard why he thought that. And it was clearly the education that he got from the educators as to why he thought what he thought he, he isn't quite exposed enough that he really has his own opinion to that extent. But so I sat him down and went, okay. And I just kind of played the devil's advocate and I gave him some information and, and supplied him with some actual statistics that I was actually on the phone with um, Dr. Day going, Hey, my kid says this, what is the numbers on that? And he, he's brilliant. He, he comes back with like, and he knows this stuff. It's not like he's looking it up. He's like mm-hmm. 32.7%, like just knows it. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I give my kid all this information. He goes back to school and presents the, the anti- you know, the, 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 his paper was not in favor. It right. was against all the rebuttal, of right? But it it's was, the recovery focused approach. Exactly. Right. Which and, is much different. And it was interesting because that, you know, nobody was offended. Nobody was, you know, I had a conversation with a teacher afterwards. It was like, that's, that's not the information that I have. And yeah. I went, well, I don't know where you're getting the information, but I'd love to give you some other information to kind of mm-hmm. reframe that. Right. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think a lot of the public support for a lot of the programs are, are, being agendas being pushed by advocates. If that's the only message, if that's the only statistics, if that's the only information they're getting, why wouldn't you believe it? It's right? the dominant narrative, but it's not quite the right one. For sure, for sure, right? That's why I think we're trying to take a little, you know, without without picking fights or arguing with people. It just, you know, here's another <laughs> option that we could do, right? right? And provide some support for that. For sure. That, this is a little off topic, but that really reminds me and, and quickly how things can get skewed depending what narrative you're listening to. This goes back to my college days. I was going to university in, in North Dakota and me and one of my good hockey buddies were down there playing hockey and we're sitting in the U.S. history class and both kind of half asleep or whatever, but they're teaching you know, in history class that the U.S. won the Vietnam War and we're both looking at each other thinking, man, I don't think that's how it went, but, <laughs> but that's the narrative, right? And that's where a lot of the education is coming from down there it's similar to this right it depends where you get your information from and you can easily push easily 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 yeah i'm coining new phrases on here (laughs) easily push whatever narrative you want it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that it's it's true yeah yeah you say it loud enough with enough confidence it makes it factoring yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah for sure and i also think you know we were talking about um safe supply and not to go down that rabbit hole too far but coming from somebody who lived that lifestyle, if you, Rick, are have the good stuff that I'm used to getting and you, Michaela, have the stuff that's medical grade and going to keep me safe, mm-hmm. right? Air I'm quotes. Definitely, safe. yeah, air quotes. I can forget that we're on a podcast here. <laughs> I'm definitely going to use your stuff to get his stuff. 100%. 100%. I'm not going to use your value. subpar stuff when I know how banged up your stuff gets me. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. and that's also why we switched. Um, we approved new medication, Sublocade, mm-hmm. um, because it's not something that can be dealt. Um, Sublocade totally. is injected under your skin and it stays in your system. I believe, um, once again, politician, not a doctor, but it stays in your system for a certain amount of time. And, it, and it's like a slow release mm-hmm. um, therapy that actually helps you for longer. And you can't, it doesn't have the same, I guess, sexiness on the street because you can't sell it. Yeah. Once it's in you, it, it's there. And to me, that is, that is a way that we are doing what is right, but still, but mitigating the risk. And so technically, yeah, sure. That that's harm reduction. We are, we're reducing harm. We're finding a way for someone to get out of the cycle of addiction (laughs) Mm -hmm. and somebody to get off, say heroin or, or whatever else they've chosen that day. But now they're, they're taking something that is supervised with a doctor, Dr. Day with the VODP program, something that. Um, has less risk involved and something that can't be sold on the black market or turned around and, and sold for something quotes better or something that will get you more high. And yeah. I think um, that leak that like leakage from safe supply communities onto the streets is, is very obvious. And you see this right now um, in Vancouver um, and in San Francisco. Um, you see this basically anywhere where they try to, to employ quote unquote safe supply um, you see more issues and um, I, I think, you know, we have, there's an incumbency, incumbency upon us as a government to do the least amount of harm. And um, same with physicians. And I often wonder, you know, physicians who are proponents of safe supply, how does that fit with their Hippocratic Oath? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I call that into question because you're not doing less harm. You're doing more harm. And once we step out and see talk to people with lived experience and see what's actually happening on the streets as a result of government policy that is maybe well-intentioned, but poorly executed. Um, We're going to see where the deficiencies are in our system. And um, when we're already struggling with having too much, um, too many opioids on the street, the solution is not to add more that are taxpayer funded (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um, can be commodified and sold for something even more um, dangerous. So like to that point, we, we had a, client that I worked with at OCJ and he, uh, he went into the, the corrections program. Well, as a, in custody, not as a employee, but ended up with corrections. Um, he entered into the corrections without, without having an opioid issue. It wasn't, it wasn't his issue, um, that led him there. And he immediately found out on intake that if he said that he had an opioid dependency, he would be given um suboxone mm-hmm. and he he could cheek it and it would give him it was like currency inside so he started he, he claimed that he did have an opioid dependency he was without much question at all prescribed um his daily dose he would cheek it stockpile it it was like currency uh part way through his sentence he was like well if there's I wonder what this is doing. Like if guys are willing to pay for this, it must be something better than just staring at the walls. So we started trying some comes out fully addicted to Suboxone. Um, comes out part of his exit plan, you know, going through parole and probation. There was, there was a time delay of about, I can't quite remember what he said, 12 days. I think it was from the time he was released until, um, till he was able to meet with his, PO and get a prescription for aftercare. He had created a physical demand in his body that couldn't be fulfilled because he didn't have access to Suboxone for those 12 days, ended up with street grade heroin. And now he's a heroin addict. And so he went into corrections. Slippery slope. With no, with no opioid issues at all and came out a full blown drug addict. Because of policy, I understand the policy that was there. I understand what it was intended to do, but like you said, you know, it, it, it just fell flat on delivery. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, I think that, you know, one of the biggest issues that I see with the big machine of government is, you know, I've kind of always tried to live by, well, at least recently, um, (laughs) live by the policy of fail quickly. Right. If, if I'm trying something and it doesn't work, don't get so hung up on the idea and what it took to, to roll that out that I just stay there. Mm-hmm. And I see that being the big issue with, um, 
with some of the agencies and some of the policies is it's taken three years to get a policy through to become policy. And it's like, man, that's a lot of work to reverse course. But when all of the evidence is going, well, this isn't working, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody's got to go, you know, I'm going to put up my hand I'm going to bite the bullet. And, you know, this didn't work. It was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, have the, have the compassion for people that be willing to take the hit and be like, this didn't work. We need to shift. And, uh, it's that, that I think is one of my biggest frustrations when I see the, you know, the mechanism of government, it's a big boat to turn once, you know, once it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's going. So, and, and, and I don't know what the solution is for that. That's, you know, and, and that's, that's a frustrating thing for me is I'm not coming with a solution. I'm just coming with a problem, which doesn't really help. So. I guess, I guess the solution is we're trying to provide it is what mm-hmm. we're trying to do is be there for that t- 12 day window, whether it's a release from remand, whether it's a release from detox, mm-hmm. whether it's a release from treatment or whether it's just self-recognition for the first time. Yeah, for sure. And I also think the new programs and the new services that the GOA has rolled out in the last six months or eight months, especially the new ones, the VODP, and those are all new things that are different than what's been done before, right? Because there's a lot of things that have been done over the last decade almost that haven't really worked. The data shows that it's not really working so well. And you can choose to believe the data or not. You can choose to believe whatever narrative you want to listen to or get your news from. But <clears throat> the new things that are rolling out is a new take on on what harm reduction looks like, right? It's we had uh Dr. Day on and he was talking about, you know, the original harm reduction model was to move people forward, not just give them things, <laughs> you know, and keep them stuck. And it's to move people forward in their life to better their quality of life. And that's somewhere along the line has been lost. And I think this is what, what these new programs are doing, right? Is, is working with people where they're at and, and helping them stay on a course that's going to better their quality of life at some point, not just keep them stuck and give them things. Well, I don't want to be sanctimonious. Like, no. I, don't, I don't want to sit here and say, like, we are the government and we're here to help. Because, totally. like, my reflex is to say, absolutely not. That is not how this works. Yeah. But what we do need to do is we need to find that that middle ground wherein we're trying new things. Because if you're doing the same thing over totally. and over again, expecting a different outcome, that's the definition of insanity, mm-hmm. right? So we need to find new ways to solve old problems. And if this works, great. If it doesn't, we need to be able to pivot. And, yeah. and I truly believe that this is evidence-based therapy that's going to help so many people. It already is. The Doors app is already helping people. VODP is already being accessed. The elimination of user fees. like Those are those are huge things that we have done that will help people. But that's not the be-all, end-all. No. And I think that um, as more um, evidence emerges, as more people step onto the scene, such as yourself, um, we're going to have opportunities to, to learn more and expand services and figure out how to, to help people that are maybe not being helped right now. Right. And so I, I would encourage anybody who's listening, like I, I'm always willing to have a coffee. Like, I, I mean, I love my coffee, but it's like, <laughs> I'm always willing to sit down and talk about this. Like, I want to hear like, what is not working for you when your lived experience, like what, what is not working and how can we solve that? Because in some ways, like that's what legislators have the power to do. We can't, make the opioid epidemic go away for sure. tomorrow. I can't do that. I wish <laughs> I could. I can't. Um, but what I can do is I can help the GOA to steer in a direction that helps you in the moment that you're at. So um, I, I guess I'm like the quarterback in that sense. Like, you know, we, we can we can find ways to put you in the right place. And sometimes it's not the government that your local friendly government representative that you want to talk to about these kinds of things. And that's cool too. And if you want to, to, so I I guess I I would just encourage listeners, like if you have these ideas, um, you can be anonymous, you can be who you are, you can be whatever you need to be in that moment where you need to be. And I said, I would be happy to listen. Um, And if you don't want to listen to me, talk to Rick and Ryan. (laughs) (laughs) You want to talk to me, I guess. And that was kind of the whole approach to OCJ when we were first coming up with what are we even doing? Right. And I, like, I remember our first podcast is what are we doing here? Yeah. And it wasn't like, uh, trying to explain to other people what we're doing here. It was us trying to figure it out. <laughs> and, uh, but, but our, our momentum always came from our lived experience and what didn't work. What, what were the hurdles that prevented me from moving forward? What obstacles did I face? And, and the more people we got in a room discussing the things that didn't work, the bigger picture we had and, and it became pretty clear where the, you know, and again, a catchphrase, you know, the gaps in the system, it became pretty evident where they were. And we went, okay, well, that's what we need to do. We don't need to do the programs that are out there mm-hmm. different or better. They're there. 
great. What's the gap in between that, that safety net underneath everything that's, and that safety net, like you said, I think is, I will answer the phone at Mm 4am. And, and that I think is what sets, what, what the biggest benefit to what we're trying to do is, is, is that availability and that immediate response. And flexibility. I think we're all Mm -hmm. kind of building the plane as we fly it, so to speak. And to say that anyone has all of the answers is ridiculous. Yeah. So it's uh, we need to make sure that we're able to be flexible as well. Oh. And and having peer-to-peer support organizations such as yourself and recovery coaches. I know you guys didn't like that word before, but you are. So like recovery <laughs> coaches um, and having people who can meet people where they're at is just so important. And, and it's interesting because, you know, for as many of those late night phone calls that we get from people looking for support, Ryan gets them from me. And that's, it just speaks to that flexibility, mm-hmm. right? I'll be laying in bed at 11 o'clock and be like, boom, light bulb. I got an idea. What if we did this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'll fire Ryan a text at 11 PM going, I got an idea. Yeah. And I can like, I can just imagine his eye roll at 11 o'clock at night getting woke up to my <laughs> message going, I got an idea. So, uh, it's, it, yeah, I, I, the flexibility and availability I think is, is, uh, really, really critical. Yeah, for sure. And just to be fully transparent, I usually don't wake up when you, (laughs) I do wake up when my phone goes off, but if I see his name on my phone, I'm like, that's going to wait till morning. (laughs) I'll be up all night with him. (laughs) But yeah. Fair enough. Well, we are getting close to the top of the hour here. So um, any, any last thoughts or departing words? No, just thanks for all you guys do. Um, If your listeners didn't get a chance to come to your last fundraiser. It was an absolute hoot. And it was so great to see so many people from the community coming together and supporting your organization. Um, you know, I know you guys sold that out in three hours or whatever. So I would, I would challenge you to think bigger next time. Cause I think we could pack a park oh, yeah. for OCJ and I'd be willing to help. So, um, anything that well, I can do. Be careful um, what you're volunteering for. Hey, <laughs> I, I just did. So um, we, I think we can do even better than that and we can, we can get even more people out and uh, the impact that you guys are having is just growing. And as more people hear about you, they will, they will love you like I do. And um, yeah, I, I'm just so proud to be able to say that I have helped you. Um, and even if it's a small role, even if it's behind the scenes, even if it's just spitballing ideas off of to see if we can get them off the ground. Um, yeah. Like I said, I'm your biggest cheerleader. I'm happy to be, and I always will be. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for your time today and all the information and the and the support that you continue to provide us. And we know you're a busy lady, so you probably have to run out. So, bye-bye. The end. Bye, guys. <laughs> From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.